We've reached the halfway point of our series. We've talked about a lot of history so far from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s, and we're about to head into what I would consider the modern age of baseball, you know, where Latinos are a part of the narrative fully. But before we do that, and before we leave this older era, there's a few things that I was unable to work into our first four episodes. So today, before we move on to the new age of baseball, here's three stories you should know, but haven't heard about. listening to our game the podcast that sought out to find the latino jackie robinson then found out that the answer was way more complicated i'm steve granado story number one let's explore one of the greatest players to ever grace the field that you probably haven't heard of his name is martin the Higo. Tejigo was the first Latino from the Negro Leagues who was inducted into the U.S. National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. He's also in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, and Dominican Hall of Fame as the only baseball player to ever be enshrined in five different countries' halls of fame. Martin was an Afro-Latino who hailed from Cuba. Tejigo began his professional career in the Eastern Colored League in 1932, playing for the Cuban Stars. Remember our old friend Alex Pompez, who we met in episode two? Yep, Pompez was the one who found him. Tejigo ended up playing for the Homestead Grays, Philadelphia Giants, and the New York Cubans as well. Tejigo played all nine positions and switch hit. Not only was he an incredibly skilled ball player, he also sought out to learn English and American culture as fast as he possibly could. Fellow Negro Leaguer Frank Duncan said DeHigo learned English quicker than anyone he had ever seen. Like all Negro League ballplayers, DeHigo faced segregation and racism in his time. He said that even if they were admitted to hotels on the road, oftentimes they wouldn't provide them with water to bathe with. He also would face double discrimination because he was black and Latino. But despite everything he went through... Tejigo excelled on the field. I was listening to a talk on the Negro Leagues, and Negro Leagues Museum President Bob Kendrick was asked this question. Now, I have a tough question. What would be your centennial team? Ooh, man. That is a tough question. Here was his answer. If we were going position by position, I would go... First base, the great Buck Leonard. Second base, Newt Allen. Shortstop, I think you got to take John Henry Pop Lloyd. And third base, Ray Dandridge. My outfield would be Cool Papa Bell, Oscar Charleston, and I think Turkey Stearns. Although I want to put Monty in that group as well because he was so good. And then my catcher. My catcher got to be Josh, Josh Gibson. And then my pitching staff would be Satchel Paige, Bullet Rogan, Leon Day. That, that, that's pretty good. And, and the great 
my utility player would be Martin DeHigo, who plays, he can fill in in every position. <laughs> <laughs> Not only was the Higo a Negro League star, he became a Winter League icon. Just for fun, here's some ridiculous stats for you. For Havana in the Cuban winter season of 1926-1927, DeHigo batted 413. He followed that up the next season batting 415. In the Mexican League, it's now 1938 with Veracruz. DeHigo compiled a 0.92 ERA, striking out 184 batters in 167 innings. In that same year, he batted 387 and won the batting title. Fast forward to 1940. Still with the Azules de Veracruz, DeHigo played 78 games and drove in 73 runs. Now, 1942. He won 22 games with a 2.53 ERA for Algodoneros de Toreo. He had 26 complete games, the most in his Mexican League career. Oh, by the way, he had 16 or more complete games in 5 of 11 seasons in Mexico. He got hits off Satchel Paige. He was a role model for Orestes Minoso. He led the Negro Leagues in homers twice. This dude could do it all. Martin Dijigo is forever known as El Immortal and El Maestro. Story number two. Let's go back to World War II. Remember how we talked about the U.S. taking ball players in the draft to help aid in the war effort? How that led to more Latinos in American baseball and the creation of the All-American Girls League? Well, the U.S. military wasn't the only one raiding professional baseball. It's time we talk a little bit about Mexico. As MLB insider John Morosi describes it. Mexico, where uh, baseball is known as El Rey de los Deportes, the king of the sports. African-American ballplayers had been regular participants in Cuba's winter scene since the early 1900s. Professional leagues in Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Venezuela gave players an opportunity to play year-round and escape a lot of the injustices faced in Jim Crow America. In 1937, an oil tycoon by the name Jorge Pascal began raiding the Negro Leagues for talent to come play in Mexico, including the guy we just talked about, Martin de Higo. From 1937 to 1946, more than 150 black players from the U.S. went to play in the Mexican League, including future Hall of Famers Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. With all the success rating the Negro Leagues brought, Pascal took that same model to the white major leagues in 1943 to grab Latino players. Pascal and the Mexican League promised more opportunities, better conditions, desegregation, and the biggest driver, higher salaries. Early on, it was obvious those salaries would be paid. Josh Gibson was making $4,000 a year with the Homestead Grays. In Mexico, he was making $6,000 a year. Newark Eagles third baseman Ray Dandridge reportedly made four times more with the Mexican City Diablos Rojos than he did in the Negro Leagues. Hall of Famers Josh Gibson, Monte Irvin, Willie Wells, and Cool Papa Bell all jumped to Mexico. In one of the largest payouts, Puerto Rican Dodger Luis Rodriguez Omo was offered what was considered a high salary of $7,500 a year in Brooklyn. In Mexico, he signed a three-year, 
$40,000 contract, an annual value of over thirteen grand a year. Cubans Roberto Estalea, Robertito Ortiz, Gilberto Torres all left the Washington Senators to play in Mexico. As we've discussed previously, during this time, Latino players had to hide in plain sight. Owners could take advantage of the lack of opportunities for Latinos in the white major leagues. That problem could be solved by heading south of the border. Half of the 30 Latinos who made their major league debuts from 1935 to 1945 jumped ship and played in the Mexican League. The social climate was a stark difference for those players. Dark skin, light skin, it didn't matter. Everyone played together. No segregated trains, no cultural adjustment for Latino players trying to play in the States. It sounded almost too good to be true. These players became labeled as, quote, jumpers. The Latinos who left the States as their American counterparts were heading overseas for World War II. Well, that didn't sit well with too many people in Major League Baseball. The Major Leagues blacklisted the players that left. Commissioner of Baseball Albert Chandler went as far to even blacklist players that played against the players that left the majors. It seemed a little ironic, too, given that the Brooklyn Dodgers had essentially done that exact same thing by raiding the Kansas City Monarchs to get Jackie Robinson. That tradition, by the way, continued, which ultimately led to the demise of the Negro Leagues. Here's Branch Rickey speaking on the subject. I'm glad uh, that Mr. Passball likes baseball. I hope it becomes a great national game in Mexico. It is too bad that uh, he did not approach baseball in the United States through the front door. He could have gotten advice and helped players and pleasant relations and fond memories, I am sure, if he had uh, had friendly conferences with our owners and uh, with our commissioner, Mr. Chandler. Chandler eventually lost the battle to ban any of these players who played for Major League Baseball. The Mexican League offered a vision of what desegregated baseball could look like. Black players playing alongside players of lighter complexion, Latinos in the mix. Anyone could play. No discrimination. Baseball heaven. The Mexican League did it before the Major Leagues did it. Story number three. The 1963 MLB All-Star Game was a good one. Good afternoon, baseball fans. This is George Bryson with Bob Neal. Welcome you to the 1963 All-Star Baseball Game. On July 9th in Cleveland, Ohio, a stacked national team composed of Willie McCovey, Stan Musial, Sandy Koufax, Bill Mazeroski, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and others defeated Al Kaline, Mickey Mantle, Brooks Robinson, and Carl Yastrzemski of the American League by a final of 5-3. to three. But we're not here to talk about that game. We're here to talk about a different All-Star game. One week after the season ended, on October 12, 1963, Major League Baseball held its first Hispanic All-Star game at the fourth and final incarnation of the Polo Grounds in Upper Manhattan. The game was meant to be a charity event. Check out this roster. Fresh off throwing the first no-no by a Latino earlier in the season, Dominican Juan Marichal on the hill. The Puerto Ricans, 34 homers and 97 RBIs, Orlando Cepeda batting cleanup, and the man himself, 
Roberto Clemente managing while hitting sixth for the National League. For the American League, Venezuelan Luis Aparicio leading off at short, followed by Cubans Orestes Minoso, Tony Oliva, Zoilo Versailles, and Puerto Rican Victor Peyot. Stacked! The day kicked off with a home run derby and musical performances and ended with the National League prevailing 5-2. Juan Marichal struck out six in four shutout innings. Felipe Alou had an RBI. Manny Moda with a pinch hit two-run single. Marichal called the event historic, also saying, quote, There was a lot of emotion among all the players, and you could tell the fans were excited about it too. Tony Oliva remembered the event like this. Quote, when I was invited to play in the game, I had no idea that the Polo Grounds was such a historic place. I was only in my second year playing professionally in the minors. It was a surprise that they even invited me. And then I get to New York City and the Polo Grounds. It was amazing. End quote. It was where Oliva first met Clemente, Marichal, and everyone else. Manny Moda said, quote, For us, it was a question of prestige and pride, because we were representing our countries. It was a rare event. And all the players had a grand passion for this game because they knew what it signified for us and Latino fans, end quote. In a stadium that sat 56,000, only 14,235 showed up in what became the final professional game ever played at the Polo Grounds. Each player only received $175. Major League Baseball never held a Hispanic All-Star game again. These stories, like many others, have disappeared from history books. Like we've seen from early on in American baseball, the history of Latino involvement has largely vanished. We've thought about Major League Baseball and the color line as a black and white issue for way too long, and the injustices that Latinos have faced in the game can no longer go ignored. We aren't ignoring them anymore. We're facing them head on. As I hope you've learned in the first half of our series, we've always been there, even if we've had to hide in plain sight. We aren't hiding anymore. We're right here. It's 1981, and it's going to be pretty damn hard to hide a 20-year-old, 5'11", 180-pound left-hander smack dab in the middle of Los Angeles. Get ready. Fernando Mania is coming next time on Our Game. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode. Information and sound clips from this episode come from the book Playing America's Game by Adrian Burgos Jr., Sabres' discussion of the Negro Leagues, MLB.com, the podcast Storied by Routine Baseball, BaseballHall.org, The Undefeated, RE, La Vida Baseball, the Louisville Slugger Museum, and Baseball Reference. Our theme song and original music are produced by Alex Schmitten. You can support our work by going to anchor.fm slash ourgamepodcast and clicking support. Whatever you can donate, every little bit helps. Tell your friends and family about our show and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who has shown their support. You have not gone unnoticed. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ourgamepodcast. We post pictures, videos, and other things that pertain to every single episode. You also get sneak peeks of the following week's episode. 
You can follow me on Twitter, too. That's at Steve Granado. Next time on Our Game. He's, a, he's our hero. He's our Mexican hero. Who's that out on the mound? He's a little bit round. It's Fernando. I never caught anyone that could do more with a baseball than so Fernando. Relaxed. I knew there was a, a little bit of a disconnect between the Dodgers and the, the Mexican community in L.A. just based on Papinash Chavez Ravine and, and all that. The Fernando Valenzuela magic is alive and well. Who's to say when it will end? Like a flea off a hound.